Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Byrne. How you doing? I'm doing fine. The sun's shining here in New York City, and uh, I think things are getting better in the world. Well, we hope so, and things are going to be very much better today on the Playground Podcast because we are talking with Brian Stockton, industry icon and a good friend. And Richard, why don't you take it over? Brian, nice to have you with us today. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be here and reconnect with you and Chris. You were the at one time CEO and chairman of the board of Mattel and held quite a few positions along the way getting there. And I know also that you actually love toys. And, I do. Uh, I still do. <laughs> and that, in, that I think, really informed a lot of your work. So could you just give folks, uh, for just for starters, a a little brief rundown of your life in the toy industry. I joined Mattel in uh, November of 2000, and that was after spending about uh, 25 years in the food business. And uh, I had actually worked with Bob Eckert a couple of different times at Kraft, and he'd asked me to come down to Mattel and take a look and see if it was a good fit. And I loved it because, first of all, I love toys. Uh, second of all, I love consumer products. And as a father of four and now a grandfather of two, um, you know, it's a great way to stay young and engaged with kids and what's happening with kids. So it was a lot of fun. It also was for me personally uh, a, a good move because I, I love doing marketing and general management. And so I spent, gosh, two, two and a half years doing strategy for Mattel. And then after that, I did the uh, international job for about eight years, which was a fantastic experience. Then I was a COO for a year and then CEO for three years. And the last two, I was the chairman of the board. So uh, it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. It was just a fantastic experience. I, I, I highly recommend it for people who love uh, adventure, fast-changing consumer trends, and the stress of, of dealing with a very tight holiday season. Ah! <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And if you're, not, if you're not up for that, work someplace else. <laughs> right. Now, before you became a business person, you were a kid. I know you, along with a lot of us of our generation, we played a lot with toy guns. And I believe we both shared a love of the Yancey Derringer. Yes. Yeah, I, I had that. And uh, I think that came on the belt buckle, right? That you could sort of pop it out. Slyly push your stomach out. Yeah, well, I, I can push my stomach out pretty easily now. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And uh, I'll never forget for, I can't remember what birthday it was. Uh, but I had a passion for Mattel fan or 50s. And I'm not saying this because I worked at Mattel. I was a whatever, five, six, seven-year-old boy who loved to watch Westerns. And I still remember opening that present. And, and one of my favorite little fun moments at Mattel was the person who uh, ran our office and also our archives found the double fan or 50 set that I got. And they put it in a uh, glass box and put it in my office. I loved it. Oh, that's and great. Of course, our corporate lawyer said, hey, wait a minute. We can't have the CEO have guns in his office. I had him when I was a little kid. Right. Yeah. So I remember that very well. My other favorite toy was uh, I, I grew up in southern Indiana, and that's kind of the home of the Indianapolis 500. So you kind of get racing in your blood. And uh, for Christmas one year, I got a Strombecker slot car set. And I would just play with that hour after hour, making up all sorts of stories about whatever race it might be. And uh, I'm not an engineer, but I just remember those controllers got so hot that it was like it, it burned the, the uh, image of the controller in your, in your hand. 
But I love that and uh, played with that a lot. Toy safety things have changed a little bit <laughs> since back then. <laughs> I still I still talk about it. I have my father's Gabriel soldier making kit in which you melted lead pellets and then poured them into the mold. So it was like creepy crawlers, but with lead. <laughs> Brian, do, do you feel that the industry attracts people who have still some of the child in them? And I, I mean it in the sense of that love of play and toys and respect for the whole concept of play. Well, well, I do. I think uh, the nature of the business, particularly on the more creative sides of the business, uh, you have to have a passion for that. And I think fond memories of toys as a kid. And I think basically be a kid at heart uh, with an adult brain that can do the things you need to do to design and engineer and make and sell toys. I've always believed that people tend to spend time in industries that they enjoy. And if you don't enjoy toys and understanding kids and the challenge of selling toys to retailers and things of that nature, uh, I don't think you last very long in this industry. I, I would say the same thing about the food industry or if you're in a software uh, industry. So I think it tends to attract people who have those personality traits. Uh, I know whether uh, it was talking with somebody from you know, Lego or Spin Master or Hasbro, everybody to their core kind of has the same feelings about the industry and about kids and, and doing the right thing. And I think it's sort of a self-selection process. I can remember getting into a heated discussion with a buyer once over Frida Fuzzy Paws, which <laughs> was a children's book that we were selling. And uh, I couldn't understand it, why she would not buy it, because she had done so well with a book called Scaredy Cat the year before. Yeah. So we do bring this passion to a little bit of what can seem absurd. <laughs> yeah. well, and I think some, some parts of the industry have changed. I feel like it was a thousand years ago when I joined Mattel. But, but back then, the industry was sort of uh, evolving to the hypermarket Walmart Supercenter uh, version of, of the industry. And a lot of the buyers at some of these major chains were, were toy people. As the Walmarts and Targets of the world got larger and larger, all of a sudden you didn't have a buyer who had a toy background, you might have a buyer who's buying toys who may have worked in automotive. And, and I think one of the, the challenges you have in any industry is a retailer is there to sell numbers of boxes with margins uh, attached to it, whether it's motor oil or Barbie. And you have to understand their point of view as well as understand the passion that you have to sell it and, and kind of find a, a happy medium uh, because you have to be passionate about what you're doing but you also have to understand what the buyer's background is and what they're looking for and how to make it work. So it's going to continue to, to evolve. This industry changes all the time. And I think you just have to keep that passion for kids and toys in your heart and, and let your adult brain kind of navigate everything else. Well, one of the things I've always thought about this business is it, it's this unique balance of left brain and right brain. On one level, you have to be very creative and able to project yourself into a child's mindset or a child's experience. And on the other side, you have to be very data-driven and understand production and operations. And And I've always thought that the balance between those two things was very exciting, but it does mean that it's not formulaic. You can't project as if you were tied. You know, you can't really project <laughs> what you're going to do in a given year because a child's desires are mercurial. Uh, they are, and trends in the industry change uh, all the time, you know, whether it's an entertainment, what's the hot movie this year versus the hot movie last year, 
Is there some other cultural phenomenon that's taking place that is uh, you know, driving certain toy categories? You know, it, it's very difficult. You know, I, I can remember when I first joined Mattel, uh, one of the conversations I had with uh, Bob Eckert was we needed to bring some discipline to Mattel, but not all the discipline we had at Kraft because Kraft is, is a big consumer products company. And, you know, we used to have the data so we would know if we dropped the price from Kraft singles from $2.89 to $2.49, you know, what would be the change in volume? And I could give you that change in volume for the Safeway store on the corner of 4th and Elm in Kansas City on a Friday afternoon. Our, our industry isn't that data rich and things change so much. I think you have to have discipline about how you think about things and you have to draw on past experiences, whether it's in the toy industry or whatever your background is, to try to make the best informed decision that you can. And it's definitely a, a combination of left and right brain. Uh, sometimes it's a little more right brain heavy. Sometimes it's a little more left brain heavy. But I think you have to be able to uh, you know, work both sides to uh, be successful in the toy business. So, Brian, you had this rich experience uh, on the food side, which is a consumable. Uh, and then you went into the toy business, consumer products with Mattel. What, what were the, the, the things that maybe surprised you? Uh, that were differences between the two types of businesses when you got more into uh, the toy side? Well, it, it's interesting, Richard. I've, I've been asked that question uh, a lot over my years. And I, I kind of first answer it in a way that people don't like. And that is there's probably a lot more in common between the two businesses than there are things that are different. And I've worked in enough different categories and businesses to know that about 80% of what we do is about the same. I mean, whether you're running a toy plant or a food plant, it needs to run efficiently and safely and meet all the standards and uh, not have rejects and get the product out on, you know, things like that. Uh, that has to happen. You still have to sell a retailer and get the right uh, price point and the right ad support and the right uh, displays and things of that nature. And so I've always tried to focus on what, what's the 20% that's really different. And, and in my mind, I think there's a couple of things that are different. Uh, number one, uh, this is an industry that thrives on outside influences. And what I mean by that is there's a really rich and vibrant inventor community that is really important to the industry. Whether they're inventing a little tiny mechanism that goes inside a toy that lets a toy come to life, or they create a whole toy in and of itself, uh, the industry depends on innovation because these people are untethered by all the constraints and all the limitations that the companies sometimes play, place on, on creative folks. And, and so that's very different in, in most consumer products companies today, even though you read that they're trying to bring in more outside influence, it's mostly inside ideas that you see. And uh, I, I think that's a big difference. And I, I really grew to appreciate the inventor community and how important it was to, to, to be with them. I think the second thing is um, because toys change so much, it is highly seasonal. But I have to tell you, at, at Kraft, I worked on a lot of very seasonal uh, food businesses. Try selling fresh turkeys for Thanksgiving. That is a highly, highly seasonal business, even more than, uh, than toys. But I think what's different, because the products are changing and the environment the kids are in is always changing, uh, I found the working together with retailers and really being partners, and I don't use that word lightly, uh, was quite interesting to me because a, a retailer can't have a successful Christmas without having successful uh, brands and successful companies supporting them to, to, to bring customers into their stores. 
So I, I think those were, I think, two of the big, big differences between the industries. You know, you have to have creativity across both of them. You have to have excellent execution. You have to have strong design people, marketing people, operations people pick a, a, a function. But I, in my mind, those are the two things that really separate the toy business, at least from my background in consumer products. Brian, I do want to just get back into you as a person a little bit, because uh, some people may be surprised to learn you're a musician, you're a photographer, uh, you do a lot of humanitarian work. Uh, I know when you were with the toy industry, uh, you were a, a highly affiliative person. You would always come to the play cons and you would uh, really make yourself available to people. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, this side of yourself? And uh, is it just since you retired uh, or have you always been a musician and a photographer? <laughs> well, I'll start with uh, I'll start with the business side, then we'll go to the personal side because I could talk about music and photography all day long, and <laughs> I know you I know that's what you really want to do. I would say one of the things that I have always felt uh, because I've tended to work for larger companies. Larger companies have a responsibility to the industries in which they compete uh, because they bring a lot of resources to various associations. And you know we went through some really challenging times in the toy industry and. So you, need, you needed to have the, the the big three at the time, you know, Mattel, Hasbro, and Lego step up not only financially but with resources to address some of these issues. And it's not that smaller companies weren't concerned and didn't want to contribute. It's just uh, because of their scale, they, they just didn't have the ability to uh, participate as much as I know a lot would have liked to have. And so I think larger companies had the responsibility to do those things and you know, we all know in the toy business, somebody can have a, a great holiday season. That doesn't mean that they're going to have a great holiday season next year. And you respect somebody who has a fantastic toy and does well. And that sort of motivates you to do better next year. So I, I found it to be a very competitive but yet collegial industry. And I, I love the people in it. I miss them. I haven't seen uh, many of them in a long time. But uh, I always love those events and, and reconnecting. For me personally, I would say I had long time uh, wanted to be a musician. I remember when my sister brought home the Meet the Beatles album, I decided I wanted to be the fifth Beatle. <laughs> I, I failed miserably at that and decided to you know, pursue another career as a paper boy. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, no, I've always loved music. My family's very musical and um, it's just a, ho a hobby I've had. And I credit my wife, Maureen, with about 10 years ago, really pushing me to start taking guitar lessons. I'm self-taught on the keyboard and guitar. And I was getting kind of frustrated with where I was. And I finally broke down and, and took some lessons from a fantastic teacher. And it really took my playing to a new level. So I, I love to play. I uh, have an addiction to collecting guitars. And, uh, you know, now that I'm not working full-time, I have a little more time to spend on that. But uh, I love it. To me, it's very... Uh, soothing and uh, soothing and energized. I've always had a passion for photography. Um, I started in my early 20s and then as I had kids, any any shred of creativity went the way of uh, ballet performances and school musicals and things of that nature. So again, about 10 years ago, I, I started getting active in it. And once I retired from working full-time for one company, uh, I started to decide what do I want to do with this chapter of my life? And, you know, I had a very great run as a corporate person, but I decided in this phase of my wife, uh, life, I wanted to do something different. And I wanted to focus more on the creative side of my personality and less on the business side. 
I started doing some uh, photo workshops and really became interested in photography, both the creative side and the processing side. And uh, now I can proudly say that I'm a professional photographer. People actually pay me to do what I do, which is fun. Um, as I always joke, I make enough money to send my grandkids to public school, but it's still fun nonetheless. <laughs> so it's it's a great passion. Uh, you know, one of my <laughs> one of my frustrations right now with the uh, the shelter in places, I can't get out and uh, go to the places I love to go to to photograph. It'll all come back once we're all set free. But sure, uh, I, I love to do it. When you look at the current situation with you know people not being able to go to the store and the rise in digital uh, commerce, what do you think has changed and what has changed permanently? I'm going to say on the what has changed permanently, I, I think it's too soon to really tell on that because this has uh, been so intense over a short amount of time. Uh, I do think there are some broad themes, I'll call them, that we're all going to have to pay attention to. One is, uh, particularly for the toy industry, how we're going to design and engineer toys when I think it's less likely we're going to be making trips to Asia and working side by side with the designers and engineers that we've been working with for years over there. It's going to force us to use more Zoom meetings and be even more dependent than we already are on 3D printing and things of that nature. So, So I think like all businesses which have had to sort of readjust how they work and how they think and how they collaborate, I think that's going to be a big challenge uh, for the industry because this is such a collaborative industry, particularly on the front end with the design and development. Then you kind of move through the next phase of the supply chain. And I would say one piece of good news for the toy industry is the, the manufacturing cycle tends to happen outside the flu season. So we're manufacturing in spring and summer for the fall. Uh, But then, you know, what the flu season does potentially impact, uh, you know, spring toys and summer toys. So I think we have to be mindful of that. And and frankly, I'm less worried about that because I think we've proven to be pretty good as an industry on on flexing our muscles on that. I think it's this last mile. And I think one of the things that's happened is uh, there's been such pressure on uh, all the direct-to-consumer systems, whether it's Amazon or Target.com or Walmart.com, PickYourFavorite.com, you know, we found ourselves with inventories way out of whack. You know, imagine all these retail stores that have been closed with inventory sitting on their shelves instead of sitting in a warehouse someplace where they could be shipped out on, you know, again, PickYourFavoriteRetailer.com. So uh, it's the last mile that I think we're all going to have to worry about and, and adjust to quickly. So, you know, I, I don't have a pat answer to solve that. I think it's going to be different by industry and different by customer and, and different by uh, toy manufacturer. But, but I think that's the piece I'm most worried about, because if all of a sudden there's a boomerang pandemic in November, December, or people get worried about it, and things start to shut down again. You know, imagine trying to run the supply chain and are toys a, um, a really critical product for the holidays. Well, if you're in the toy industry, you'd say yes, but if you're somebody else, you may say no. Uh, My wife has a startup, not toy-related. It's women's fashion-related. And uh, one of the challenges that she had uh, early on in this was she had the product from China, and uh, she ships a lot through Amazon. But unfortunately, at that time, Amazon was putting priority on things that they viewed as essential to ship out first, and her product was not deemed as essential. So it was sitting in the Amazon warehouse uh, collecting dust and not being shipped. That really hurt her business. Today, it's you know she's back on track, but 
those are these little unintended consequences that I think sometimes we don't think about that we need to be prepared for. Can you share the name of your wife's business? Sure. It's called Forme, F-O-R-M-E, with a little accent over it. And it's a shoe shaper for women's shoes. Um, my wife is extremely uh, creative and inventive and a very uh, good businesswoman. And she came up with this idea about four years ago and uh, spent a lot of time engineering it. Basically, it can expand a woman's shoe about a half a size because women's shoes have fit problems and uh, there's never really been a product designed to help them with that. So it's been a great success. Uh, she sells it either through Amazon or through her own direct-to-consumer business. Casting your mind back to when you were at Mattel, what were some of the major stories that broke while you were there? Some of the some of the big successes, some of the things that, that you look back on and say, wow, that was really an important incident in the toy industry. I think uh, one of the things that, uh, that happened early on was we decided to, and when I say we as the company, it was the Barbie team. Uh, I, was, I was in strategy at the time. Um, but they decided to start doing a direct-to-DVD uh, movie for Barbie. And it was really a major breakthrough that, that a toy company would make creative and distribute it directly to the consumer. And we talked a lot about, um, you know, movies for Barbie, and I know they're working on it in Mattel right now, but I think that was, to me, kind of a, a watershed moment that the toy companies could actually start to create their own content and use it to drive more volume. And so I think that was a, a watershed moment for the industry, and clearly for Mattel, that was one. That's really interesting, because now as we talk to toy companies, everybody's talking about, I can't launch a product without content attached to it. And that that's a huge issue, whether it's a webisode or an animated series. So, so really, uh, that was a huge transitional moment for the Barbie brand. Uh, it was. As I think about the toys that tend to be more successful, they have uh, either content, which is great, but it's expensive. And, and it's not that expensive to produce anymore, but it's difficult to produce great content from a creative standpoint. But other toys have what I would call a successful t- context. And one of the examples I love to use is Bathing Suit Barbie. There's no content behind Bathing Suit Barbie, but there is a context when you buy the doll that provides uh, kind of a basis for storytelling for whoever's playing with Barbie. If it's uh, Bathing Suit Barbie, I can create a story about my swimming pool. I can create a story about going to the beach. So I think Context and content are important. If it's a toy without either, I think it's a more difficult sell to the consumer uh, to create the the kind of success that people want in the industry. Any other high points that jump to mind? Yeah, and this is a a funny one. It it, it was a very difficult high point for Mattel and for me personally, but I think it was a really good thing for the industry. And that was the, the recall back in 2007. I think it woke the whole industry up in terms of uh, safety and how we were running quality assurance and making sure that we had the quality that we all wanted. And I know I personally spent a lot of time and effort on that uh, globally. And, um, you know, the company certainly did. And as an industry, we all worked together to try to figure out how do we not let this happen again. Uh, So I I think that was, that was a big moment, a a wake up call for all of us. And I think it served, clearly Mattel well, but also, I think, served the industry uh, very well. Do you feel, based on your personal experience and your professional experience, that children have really changed and that the way they play and what they expect from play has changed? I'm going to give you a, a no and yes answer. I put it in that order for a reason. 
you know, I have my own little, uh, my own little family test. I've got, you know, four kids who are all grown and I've got two grandchildren. And, you know, when I look at, um, my kids and my grandchildren, and I got some neighbors with uh, younger kids, the, the needs that they have as kids, uh, developmental needs really haven't changed. And, and I doubt that they will, because there's just biological things that we all go through as, as humans to grow our cognitive senses and our emotional and sharing and things of that nature. So I don't really think that's changed that much. What has changed is certainly the environment uh, around these kids and what they're exposed to. So I think you almost have to have one foot in what's not changed, because in the end, you have to deliver some kind of toy or some kind of piece of entertainment that appeals to these kids that, that lets them learn about sharing or lets them learn ABCs, one, two, threes, whatever it is that, that they need in their stage of development. You have to address that because that appeals to the child because they want to grow. And it certainly appeals to the parent that want their child to develop as, as quickly and, and effectively as they can. Uh, so I think you have to have that. But you also have to think about what works today. And this whole discussion about uh, how much content do you need? How do you deliver the content? How much do you spend on the content? Um, you know, how does it relate to the toy? Do you partner with other brands? Do you want a license? There's so many choices out there and, and so many things that you have to do today because the technology enables us as toy marketers to do so many things that we couldn't do before. And, and I've always believed that what we have today in terms of how we can reach and engage with consumers, it's, it's truly a double-edged sword. There's a negative edge, which is, gee, does it take playtime away from toys? I think the answer is yes. How much? I've never seen a study that really tells me you know, with any confidence how much it is. But on the other hand, it also lets you engage with consumers like we've never been able to do before. And, you know, I say that every year and then every year there's some new thing. That's another way to engage. So I think you just have to think about what's the root of what we're trying to do to make this child and parent happy and how do we do that? And that's where I think the environmental changes and technology changes really come into play. When you look in your crystal ball 10 years from now, what do you see for the toy industry? Oh, gosh. Well, I, I think that's a really good question. I, I think it's going to continue to evolve. And on the technology side, um, there are so many things, uh, you know, we've, we've seen toys try to do holograms in the past. You know, it, I, I think it's one of those things where experience tells you that the toy industry takes on technology when it becomes affordable to put it in a toy. The cameras is a great example of it used to be too expensive to put in a toy. How many toys have little cameras in them? I think it's just going to be an explosion of technology. It just is changing so rapidly, uh, both in terms of physical technology and engineering that can go in toys to make them uh, more fun and more robust, while still addressing the core developmental needs that I talked about earlier. And on the, the marketing side, uh, I think it's going to be so different. Uh, I mean, just since uh, you know my wife started her business with uh, – uh, doing advertising on Facebook and Instagram. It, it's it's uh, fascinating to me to see all the changes that's been going on there and just simple changes, like what's the level of, of creative that you need to be um, successful? Gosh, my wife and I made the mistake of being, I'll say, overly perfect early on. And now today things change so quickly. Uh, I hate to use the term good enough, but that's what you need. It's, it's is it good enough? For someone to view for five seconds, uh, because everything everything in the digital world is disposable. 
Brian Stockton, it's been such a pleasure having you with us today and uh, sharing your your great in-depth knowledge of the toy industry uh, and your own personal story. So thanks for being with us. Thank you, Richard. It's been uh, great to reconnect with uh, you and Chris. And I, I have to put in a shameless plug for my Instagram. It's Brian Stockton Photography. So go look at it and let me know what you think. Have fun. And we now reach the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about different ideas that have come up in the past week. And this week, we're going to go out on a limb, a shaky limb, perhaps. uh, But we're going to talk a little bit about what's going to happen with the shows. Recently, we talked to Jay Foreman, and he was pretty bullish on Dallas as a show. But that's coming up, up in October. Richard, what's your handicap on the shows coming up? Well, I think the industry, number one, has to go back to uh, in-person shows. Uh, I think um, uh, providing digital alternatives is a nice try, but I don't think it's anywhere as engaging uh, or as as effective as when we all get together. So I'm going to say, first of all, uh, I really hope uh, that these shows are going to go on uh, I think uh, as far as Dallas is concerned, uh, I'm hoping that by October we'll be back to normal. But I, I don't know if, if we're still wearing masks on airplanes and if we're still in that kind of a situation, I, I think that it could could really handicap the show. I mean, I, I think it, it, the show could go on, but I think there's another question of the people go. Right. And as far as New York and Germany, that's so far in the future. I sure hope things change because... Uh, the thought of a trip to Hong Kong having to wear a mask the whole way uh, <laughs> is is not a pleasant thought. Well, right now, if you go to Hong Kong, you have to quarantine for 14 days in a hotel before you even go out. And if you fly into Texas, depending on what market you fly into, you have to quarantine as well. So that's just going to kill everybody's schedule. I'm getting outreach from the Nuremberg show about do I want to book my hotel room, but I've demurred so far. But a lot of this is going to hinge on whether or not we have a decline in COVID cases and especially if we have a vaccine. Yeah, I, I don't think it's, it's going to be a question. Uh, I think people are done with being quarantined. I don't, I don't think it's going to be a question of governmental mandates as, well as, as, as to whether shows take place. I, I do think it's going to be uh, how our individual is going to react in, in assessing risk. And in dealing with maybe some additional obstacles and just getting there. All we can say is wait and see at this point. We'll we'll see what happens. We can't wait to be back with everybody. I can't wait to be sitting across the table from you. Yeah. And and you you person listening to this, we miss you. We miss you. We miss you. (laughs) And we'll miss you until the next time. This is the Playground Podcast with Richard Gottlieb and me, Chris Byrne. And we are brought to you in part by Kid Stuff Public Relations. Thanks so much for listening in, and we will see you next time. Adios, friends.